Exodus 22, 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have breathed it out for our benefit so that we can know you and understand you in a better way, but Lord, also so that we can know ourselves. And Lord, we, we ask that this morning, as we humble ourselves before your word, that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. And Lord, what we have not, um, you would give us. And allow me, as your messenger, to be faithful to your word that you would be seen and your people would be strengthened by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the very words, Lord, that you have breathed out for our benefit. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, someone asked me this week, Pastor Rod, what are you going to preach on this Sunday? And I, asked, I answered that question by saying seduction, sorcery, money lending, and roadkill. And um, that is actually our text. And these four words um, really, in one sense, you might think don't have anything in common unless, of course, they describe, you know, the, the plot line of the latest blockbuster movie or something like that. But these words and, and, and many others that are in our text, they, they run through this, this text, giving the appearance of a lack of cohesion that God just kind of went bleh and threw these things out. And yet... What we find as we look closer into this text, that there is, a, there is a theme that's rising up that God wants us to see. You see, most people, when they, when they read the rules that God gives, and of course, that's how this begins in chapter 21. These are the rules, he says. And these, of course, are the case law that, that flesh out the Ten Commandments. And uh, certainly, they're not exhaustive by any means. But as, as people think about these rules, often they tend to think that these rules are confining, restricting, controlling, uh, smothering, manipulative, and even extreme. And friends, that is our sinful human nature kicking in to fight against anyone who is telling us what we can and cannot do. But when we take time to think, and we think through these rules, this case law in particular, what we find is that God has an underlining purpose in it all. He's not being a killjoy. He's not trying to force you to live by regulations so that your personal flourishing is stifled. 
He's not trying to reign on your everyday parade. No, there's something more reasonable at play. Now, as we come to this passage today, I want, I want to, to, to point out to you one particular attribute of God that undergirds, you might want to say, sets this text in a place to help us understand what is going on. It's found in verse 27, and it's all about how we should be approaching the poor, and, and it's the attribute of God's compassion. Let's read this verse. If uh, Begin at verse 26. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. For I am compassionate. Now the point there is this, that God is giving this case law with the backdrop of his character. He's not just throwing out a bunch of rules. He's giving it to us based on who he is, what kind of God he is. He is a compassionate God. And so behind each and every rule that God gives his children is his heart of compassion that reflects his character and conforms to his glory. He is truly a compassionate God who cares deeply about the welfare of his people. Let me put this in more practical terms so that we can understand what it is that God is doing. If you have children, you teach and enforce rules because you are a loving, caring, and compassionate parent. For example, when you get in the car and you are telling your children, make sure you buckle up. What's behind you actually telling them to buckle up isn't that there is a law in the land. Ultimately, it is because you have compassion for your children that if there is an accident, they will be safe. Your love and care and compassion is driving the implementation of that rule. Or as they get a little bit older, you teach your children that the kitchen is not necessarily a safe place. It's a place of danger. So don't reach up on the stove. Don't put your hands up there because it is hot. In fact, that's one of the first things we teach our children once they're able to walk. Be careful there. Why? It's not because you are just a uh, you know, person who just wants to lay out rules in the house. No, it's there because you care about your children and you have a compassion for them because you don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to hurt. As they get a little older, one of the things that happens is they begin to navigate the internet. And as a parent, you lay down some rules and regulations and some filters, and you put those in place. Why? Not because you just want to be a killjoy about life, but because you care about your children. You care about the influences that are out there. You have compassion for them, and so you establish a rule for their care and for their benefit. You see, it's the heart of the parent that is behind the establishment of these rules. And that is what's going on here with this case law, in particular in our text. God's compassion is at work. And as he is thinking about the social life of Israel, he's functioning with compassion and he's laying out case law to help not only the rulers determine what they need to do whenever they face some issue that is brought to their court, but also for every Israelite to understand that these things are important. Now, you might see from the heading in your ESV the title, Social Justice. You guys have that in your Bibles there? You read that there? It's a word that has been heavily in our vocabulary, in our country in particular, and even in the church over the past five to ten years or so. And honestly, it's a pretty hard um, to find with, with people an agreement as to what social justice is actually describing. Uh, people will have different definitions, often to kind of tweak their own agenda. We might rightly say that social justice in this context emphasizes social situations where injustice has been commonplace and accepted in our society, issues such as race, such as sexuality, such as economy. However, the social justice issues represented in our text are issues with regard to how 
we are to respond to and look out for those who are mistreated, those who are marginalized, those who are under oppression, and those who are in positions of leadership. So this morning, as we consider uh, the, the proposition for our time this morning, I'm going to give you a big one, and I'm going to give you kind of a more synthesized one. God is calling his children to follow his example by being compassionate to those who are mistreated, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, or in places of leadership. Maybe putting it simply, God is calling us to a compassionate social justice. And I, I want to make sure that we're, we're not kind of jumping into the world's political social justice mindset, but what we have here is God's heart for his people. There is a social justice that God's people must have for their own people in various places. So social justice in this text is both personal, in other words, individual, and it is a corporate um, response to what's happening in their society. And for the sake of our time this morning, I'd like to group uh, the content of the text under three headings the mistreated, the oppressed, and then the responsible. And to emphasize that behind each of these categories is a sovereign God who has compassion for his people. And it's worth noting that the fact that God is giving these rules is a clear indication that these various social justice issues will be a present reality in the life of Israel. So these are not unrelated or irrelevant things that God is speaking about. These are things that God knows Israel is going to face. These are real issues that will come up in the life of Israel. So let's begin, first of all, with compassion for the mistreated. Compassion for the mistreated. And you'll note that I'm I'm actually categorizing some of the, the case law here into groups here, not necessarily following completely with the structure and the order of the text. There are four groups of people identified that are often mistreated or marginalized. And God is saying, I have compassion on these people, so you must treat them with respect and dignity. The first one is the virgin. Let's read verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So in this text, we're being told that God's people are not to rob the chastity of others. Here we have an illustration of a seduced virgin. Now, what we're reading here is not rape. What we're reading here is illicit sex that's brought about by seduction and ultimately, we might say, consent. But it's a... I want to say manipulated consent. And so the, the purpose of this law was to protect the woman in this case. Why? Because a woman who was not a virgin in the Hebrew society would have great difficulty or opportunity to be married. And because of this act, she would be virtually unmarriageable. So she was viewed as the more vulnerable in the situation. The Hebrew word for seduce has the basic meaning of to deceive someone um, who is naive or inexperienced. One translation renders this, the man talks to her or talks her into having sex. So when a man takes advantage of a young woman by seduction in order to have sex, he is pressing her into compromise and, and to give in. And so the burden of responsibility was greater for the man in this case because he had seduced her. Now, both had committed a sin. You get that here. Both are responsible for the sin of premarital sex. But that's not the point of this case law. The point of this case law is actually to protect the woman. The point is to protect her um, because the damage caused by the man's seduction is great for her. So God's compassion is for this young woman whose life has been radically aff uh, affected by the seduction of this man, 
And, and so there's two possible out, outcomes that you see here. Either the man would pay the bride price and marry her. 50 shekels, I think, is what Deuteronomy says. Or if the father refused. Now, if the father kind of sized up the guy and said, no, this is not, this is not who you should marry. The, the man was still required to pay the bride price, the dowry. That's a pretty hefty amount of money. And of course, uh, that would certainly put some brakes on people pursuing and seducing. This is a reality. Now, our society, and maybe we even in the church would say, well, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? So they're both responsible. Yes, they're both responsible. Well, she consented, therefore, she is just as much to blame. Well, for the sin, yes, but not for the circumstance. You see, God speaks up and he defends the victim of the seduction. This kind of behavior, friends, between men and women crosses all cultures, doesn't it? Where men seduce and conquer and they move on. And what happens is the young women are left to face their shame and disgrace while the men gather together and celebrate their victory. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, oh no, that's not happening. Not in Israel, not in my nation. I'm here to protect the vulnerable virgin who's been seduced. You see the compassion of God? Even in sin, he is compassionate for this young woman. Next, we move on to the sojourner. That's verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So sojourners were resident aliens. They were foreign-born, temporary, or permanent residents among the people. And because they were foreign-born, they were liable to discrimination. Now that discrimination can come as a result of, of I would say, religious uh, uh, discrimination because it may be in their country or where they're, where they're from. They, they worship a pagan god. They have pagan practices, and they're associated with those things, and so they're treated badly. But here God is saying, no, 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 you are to treat them uh, with dignity. God explicitly prepares a law that demands that they not be mistreated. They are not to be wronged. The idea is they're to have their their rights violated or to be oppressed. And that's talking more about the actual physical affliction that would come upon them. And the emphasis of his case law is to take Israel back to Egypt and to say, look, you were sojourners. You were aliens. So remember what it was like. Have then compassion on these people. Now, if we're to apply this passage to our context, this speaks to us about immigrants, both legal and illegal. And just some questions for you. Do we allow our politics to dictate our attitudes and actions toward people who have come to our country from other places? Do we have some kind of perceived prejudices because of things that have we have heard about their countries and their culture that we somehow impose unto them? Are we guilty of violating their rights or even some forms of physical affliction? And what makes them any different than us? I'm speaking into our American context. Did you know I'm an immigrant? But I didn't get the hassle that lots of people are getting. We're not some of you or your parents or your grandparents or your ancestors immigrants to this country. Looking for freedom and opportunity, landing at Ellis Island or Angel Island. We're not some of your descendants uh, put in chains, forced to live for months on packed ships where many people suffered and died of disease, only to be sold in slavery once they arrived. In both cases, friends, by God's providence, you are here. This is the makeup of our country. What makes you any better than anyone else? Shouldn't we treat those who are coming and are here with respect, or have we somehow bought into a a, a hatred because, well, we were here first. This is not a children's playground, 
See, God has an attitude toward those who are sojourners, those who are aliens, immigrants, people who are living among us. Again, here we see God's heart of compassion for those who are marginalized. And friends, the irony here is that the Jews would eventually become a sojourning people across the world without a a land to call home. Well, that's the sojourn. Then we have the widows and the fatherless. This group, the widows and the fatherless, are especially vulnerable because they don't have natural protectors from those who want to exploit them. And so he says they're not to be mistreated. The word there means to humiliate, to abuse. And if you do mistreat them, you'll face the wrath of God, is what he says. I will surely hear their cry. And friends, there's there's an echo here of Israel's situation in Egypt in the words, I will surely hear their cry. Just listen to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And of course, we found in chapter 1, as the, as the book of Exodus began, that Pharaoh demanded that all the male children should be killed or thrown into the Nile. And in the end, the one who, who mistreated God's children suffered the loss of his own firstborn son. That's poetic justice. And I want you to notice what we're told here, verse 24. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God is acting here as the protector to both the widow and the fatherless child. And this theme runs throughout Scripture, doesn't it? Because God has a special compassion for the widow and the orphan. He cares about single mothers. He cares about fatherless children. He cares about widows. And friends, so should we. And then there's the poor. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So this final group is the poor. They can be easily mistreated or taken advantage of, and it's easy to be cruel to them. Because the poor are without any power in and of themselves. They are dependent on those who have. And often they find themselves being mistreated, working longer than they're contracted to work or not getting paid for the work that they've done. And there's two issues that really come up in our text here, the lending of money and also the returning of their cloak. So when we think about the lending of money, we must be be very careful to only say what the text is saying. It's not saying that you must lend money to the poor. Also, it's not saying that it's a sin to charge interest when you lend money to people. But what it is saying is this. If you lend money to the poor, what? Don't be like the money lenders and don't exact interest from the poor. Why? Because they're already in bondage and suffering. They're already struggling. Don't take advantage of their misfortune and their vulnerable situation to simply make some money. Lend them money so that they can rise up out of their poverty. Don't keep them in poverty or make it worse for them. Remember, these are your neighbors. These are your people. So so God in the economy of Israel is saying, look, you look out for the poor. You don't take advantage of them. You help them if they need money, those who have Let them have money, but don't charge interest. Now, on the morning of April 18th, 1906, a massive earthquake hit San Francisco, and the subsequent fires destroyed uh, 80% of the city. And many people, especially the poor and the immigrants, wondered what they would do. The major banks would not help them out because they considered them to be a high credit risk. But there was a man by the name of Amadeo Giannini 
who took this opportunity to give out low interest loans to the working class people of San Francisco simply on a handshake. As a result, the city was able to be rebuilt. Today, that bank is known as the Bank of America because his heart was to help the common man to be able to rise up and to be helped. Very similar theme. God is saying, don't take advantage of the poor. Help them out instead. But not only is there talking there about taking a loan, but there's also this issue of, of a cloak. And if, you ever, if you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Look, what is a cloak? A cloak is like a, you know, it's a four-cornered kind of like a blanket that a poor person would use basically as their home. They would go off someplace to sleep at night, and the only thing they had was the cloak to keep them warm and to protect them from the elements. So all they had to put down as a pledge and a guarantee that they were going to do the work that they were being called to do was their cloak. And what, what God is saying here is, look, you may have every legal right to take that cloak because it was put down in pledge. But really, these are the poor. This is all they have. Give it back to them. Give it back to them so that they can sleep through the night and be ready to work the next day and make the kind of money so that they can survive. Have some compassion on them. So to withhold a man's cloak, although it was a legal right, was to take away his warmth, to take away his shelter, to take away his security. And here, God lays down the law and says, if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And with those words, we're given the reason why this sort of behavior is expected in Israel. It's because it reflects the character of God. Now, we're, we're here, you know, in the church, we're not necessarily bound by this case law specifically, but certainly the principles that are there. Should, should fuel us then to think about how we relate, not only to the body of Christ, but even those that are outside the body of Christ. Now, friends, there's a couple of things I want to say just in reflection of this first point. And some of it might be controversial to you, and that's okay. I want you to think about it. But I want you to understand, first of all, that social justice is not the gospel. One of the mistakes of contemporary Christian culture is to equate social justice with the gospel. What our text makes very clear here is that God in his law lays a foundation for his people to have compassion and to treat marginalized and disadvantaged people with respect and dignity. Hear this. Jesus didn't come to raise the poor out of their poverty. Jesus didn't come to bring equality between people of different colors. Jesus didn't come to put a stop to oppression in all its forms. No, he came for a much greater purpose. Now, I just want to pause and say, those things are not unimportant to him, but they are not the primary focus of his interaction with us. There will always be people who are poor. Did you know that? There will always be conflict between the races. It will. But Jesus comes with a far greater purpose. He came to set those people free from the bondage of their sin. He came preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, that he, the son of God, would release his grip on heaven, take upon himself the form of a servant, and put on humanity only to live a life with the purpose of hanging on a cross to die for the sins that we were guilty of. If Jesus just came to heal people and to provide food for the needy, he would not have accomplished the gospel that is throughout prophesied in the Old Testament. That's not why he came. He came to set people free from their sins. So he came to redeem us and through that redemption to set us free. Now hear this, he didn't come to give us prosperity, 
or to move us out of our poverty or to bring restoration between people groups. But what he does know is that through the gospel, the poor become rich. Through the gospel, the divided become united. Through the gospel, the oppressed become liberated. And what happens when someone truly becomes a believer? Something is awakened in their heart. Something's awakened in their thinking. The word of God begins now to filter into their mind and heart and now changes their thinking and their worldview. So that they're able to move out of of their situation. They're able to think biblical thoughts and, and to make progress. This is the gospel at work. But the gospel comes first. Then the change takes place. Why? Because we are all citizens of a new kingdom where he is their Lord and master, where justice, fairness, and vindication will be realized, where he, as our protector, will fight on our behalf. So friends, hear this. Christians should be actively concerned about social justice because it is rooted in the character of God fleshed out in the Ten Commandments, and even now as we're going through this text, fleshed out in the case law. In other words, it was already there in the gospel, or say in the word of God, in the Ten Commandments, in this case law, before Jesus ever came to this earth. He didn't come with some new thought that said, you need to take care of the poor. That's already here. He came to bring the gospel of the kingdom. And to revive people through that gospel, look, take care of your brother. Help your sister. Look out for your neighbor. See, these are all fruit, outgrowths, fleshings out of the gospel taking root in a person's life and heart. We should be far more concerned to be mobilized to spread the good news of the gospel because that is ultimately what people need. Now, don't don't be wrong. There is... There's a right place for social justice and helping people out. But unfortunately, organizations that go out to do that with the gospel, you know what happens? The social agendas eclipse the gospel and the gospel diminishes and disappears. When the whole point was to make sure that the gospel was being brought to those people who are in those difficult situations. So friends, we need to revive a picture, a vision that says, yes, let's take care of people here. Let's be about justice. Let's be about those things. But let's first and foremost be about the gospel and see that that's fleshed out. All right. You're all still here. That's good. All right. Glad to hear that. All right. Compassion for the mistreated. Then secondly, compassion for the oppressed. Compassion for the oppressed. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Pastor, preach, man, preach. Well, no, I mean, God has a reason for this. As we move now from the the mistreated, we move into the second group, the sorcerer, the, the, the person who commits bestiality and the idol worshiper. And it might shock you that this is part of God's case law. Is God saying that he has compassion on these people? The answer is no. That's not the point here. Their sin demands capital punishment. The sorcerer is not permitted to live. The one who's committed bestiality is put to death. The pagan idol worshiper is to be devoted to destruction. These are all final judgments of God. But the people God has compassion for are his children the people of Israel who will have to encounter these kinds of people and their pagan influence. Why? Because they had just left a nation where paganism in all its form was part of the worship. And they are going to be going into a land, the land of Canaan, where all these different people groups gather. And we know from history that even in Canaan, there were things like bestiality that took place in the context of the worship of their pagan gods. And God is saying, look, you're, you've come out of the influence. You might even have some lingering things 
Egypt is still with you. And you're going to be entering into a context where these things are happening. And I'm concerned about how that is all going to influence you. Now, think through this. Sorcery, first of all. Sorcery is a challenge to the sovereignty and providence of God. It is an attempt to know the future that God has prepared. It is an attempt to manipulate the future that God has prepared. In other cases, it's an attempt to usurp the sovereignty and providence of God by doing harm to people through various forms of magic. So sorcery is witchcraft. It runs against God. And God says, I will not put up with that. I will not allow my people to suffer with that. Bestiality. Now, I realize this is a totally disgusting topic to even talk about, but it's in God's word, and we need to see it as it's set in God's word here. If God is giving a law to Israel, again, you can be sure that it was a practice that was taking place among the pagan people around Israel, and he wants to protect his people from that. So, as I mentioned, this this is all part of the worship, in particular, Canaanite worship. It's believed that the the, the act with the animal in some way uh, allowed you to engage with the God that that animal represented. Okay, this is the thinking. Of course, we know that it's a perversion of the divine gift of sex, and it is a perversion and denigration of the dignity of the image of God in man. God has placed man above animals, and as such, this behavior blurs that distinction. It is truly an abomination to God. And then we have idolatry under this heading. And idolatry is one of those, those things that if, if the children of God are going to offer a sacrifice to a pagan God, they are denying the fundamental reality that God of Israel is even their God. It's a violation of the second commandment. Ligon Duncan says helpfully, as murder kills the body, as far as Moses is concerned, sorcery, idolatry, and false religion kills the soul. See, God is ultimately concerned about the soul of his children. These rules against these practices are given out of compassion for the spiritual health and well-being of Israel to protect them from the pagan influences that, that will destroy their walk with God. Now, as we consider the world that we live in, we can be sure that these same practices, along with other kinds of perversions, are certainly present. We are, we are living under an oppressive movement in our society. You experience, if you're a child of God, you experience this. The, the, the oppressive movement is there forcing us, seeking to, to, to cause us to accept homosexuality as normal when God calls it an abomination. To embrace the transgender movement when it's an offense and an affront to God's created order. To legitimize a, a critical race theory as an appropriate framework for social interaction and legitimacy or to affirm pagan spirituality in its many forms as just another valid and important part of our spiritual health. And there's pressure. There's an environment that we are in, and there's temptation. And God is saying, look, I have compassion for you, my people, who are living under that kind of oppression. The world around us is trying to squeeze us into its mold. To call good what God calls evil. To affirm as normal what God calls abnormal. To celebrate mankind's sexual freedom when God calls it an abomination. To refrain from asking questions or having opposing opinions to the spirit of the age or be canceled. Lose your job. Lose your business. Lose your reputation in the public realm. Simply because you hold to the basic biblical tenets of Christianity. Now, God isn't giving his rules simply to be an authoritarian or to be restrictive. He's giving them out of compassion for Israel's health and well-being. You see, this is all behind what God is saying, isn't it? 
And that should help us then understand and think about what is God doing when he's laying out his law? He's not just trying to slap us silly. He cares. He cares for us. And friends, it's a lens that we need to look through when we're looking at the law of God. We move then from compassion for the oppressed to compassion for what I'm calling is the responsible. And we have to kind of wrap our heads around this one a little bit more just to think through how he's doing this. But so far, uh, we've considered Israel's responsibility toward their covenant community, in particular, those who are not so well placed. So those that are below them. We've also considered some aspects where Israel is to interact in such a way with people that are outside of them. And now God wants to give attention to those who are in a higher position of authority. In other words, those who are above them. And hear this, social justice is not just about the people who are below. It's also about the people who are above. It's about having attitudes that reflect a God-centeredness for even those who are in positions of authority. So how can we say that these laws are a reflection of God's compassion? Because God knows and understands our sinful hearts, that we have a sinful tendency to complain, to think that we know better than God, to be careless and and cavalier about what God uh, says in his rules, to pick and choose what we will obey. See, he knows the tendencies of our hearts, friends. So he, his case law represents the reality of those sinful tendencies. Now, let me try and explain that with an illustration. Imagine your son comes home and is angry and upset with the way his teacher dealt with him in a disciplined situation at school. Of course, that, that would never happen to you parents, right? He feels like he was falsely accused of something that he didn't do, and he's upset with uh, and wants justice. And as you talk with him about the situation, you say, son, I I want you to think the best of your teacher. I want you to know that teachers make mistakes every once in a while. So don't speak badly about them. Don't be disrespectful to them. If you feel angry or frustrated, don't let it control you or give you freedom to say something you will regret. And you notice there, as a father, I'm saying don't, I'm saying don't, I'm saying don't. But the father here has compassion for his son, but he is giving him instructions to remind his son of his, of his sinful tendencies that need to be kept in check. Okay, So the father is speaking to his son with compassion, but alerting his son to ways that he can fail because of the sinful tendencies of his heart. So now as we have that kind of as a backdrop, here's God speaking. And he first of all wants to talk about the disrespect of authority. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Those two go together. The word revile here is the same word that is used in Chapter 21, verse 17, to describe the disrespectful behavior toward parents. It's an attitude of disregard uh, of of the structure imposed by the moral law and even this case law. In other words, when you are disrespectful about a decision a ruler has imposed on you because he's seeking to be faithful to God's commandments, you are effectively cursing the ruler of your people. Now, the Apostle Paul reminds us that rulers are God's appointed representatives and should be shown due respect, in particular for their divinely assigned task. You know, we might say, well, we we elected them to represent represent us. And God says, well, you may have elected them, but I ordained it. I have put them in place, and you you are to respect them. Now, do you know where this verse is quoted in the New Testament? It's worth our consideration as we look at this text. The Apostle Paul quotes it not as a tool to argue his case, but in humility when he knew that he had spoken and behaved in an ungodly manner. I want you to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts 23. Acts 23. 
And we find here Paul standing before the Jewish council. It was a, it was a, a kangaroo court, and he wasn't really happy about it at all. He was being mistreated, and he was being treated unjustly. And as he's speaking, some guy is mouthing off next to him. And Paul rebukes him. Let's read it. Begin at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I don't know if you've ever used that before. Put it in, you know, in your memory bank. It might come in handy. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I just want you to think about that. Paul's in a context of persecution. He is being mistreated even by the high priest who's saying, strike him. And Paul has to place himself in submission to the word of God for his bad behavior. And he acknowledges that here by quoting this text in their presence to know I didn't know that he was the high priest. I didn't know that that was his office. I shouldn't have spoken that way. So even Paul admits that he violated this case law instruction. So he quotes this passage. Now, friends, this is an important principle for us to consider because there is now a modern cynicism and disrespect for authority, especially in the area of politics. Have we now, as the church, come to the place that we are willing to disregard God's laws because of our disillusionment with a political leader? Ask yourself that question. In what way have you let it go because of the political climate over the past year? Here's a few questions to ponder. What disrespectful things have you said about former President Donald Trump? That if you were to put that under the weight of the word of God, you would be found guilty of violating his word. What disrespectful things have you said about our president? He is our president, by the way. Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. What disrespectful things have you said about Nancy Pelosi or Governor Newsom? Have you been guilty of violating God's instructions here? And friends, when we let our emotions go and we free ourselves from the word of God, we find justifications and bleh! And the word of God comes and says, you have behaved badly. You have violated this principle. I put that person in power, and you need to respect. That doesn't mean that you can't say, I don't like this person's policy, I disagree with things, I'm offended by certain things, but there comes a point when, when the line is drawn, friends. So wherever you are in the gamut politically, you can be guilty. And God's saying, what's up with that? We can so easily allow our words to move from being truthful opinions to being disrespectful mockeries. And the Apostle Paul, while being persecuted, was humbled by the word of God, not by those in opposition to him. You get that? It was the word of God that humbled him. So that's the first thing. I'm talking here about making sure we are not disrespecting authority. Another way that we can struggle is delaying tithes. He says in verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest or from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons, you shall give him. You shall do the same with your oxen, and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. 
See, God is concerned about how we treat God himself as well as the rulers that he's placed in position. But he is also concerned about us as his people being faithful to give him his due portion. That's what he's saying to Israel. And there are basically two issues here. That they don't delay their offering and that they give him the best of their offering. That's the whole idea of first fruits. It's the best. It's the prime. That's why you have a, a firstborn son. He's talking about you know, the best of your cattle, the best of your grains. Second best is not good enough for giving to this king. So God is saying, don't delay and give your best. To fail to give God these offerings is a matter of disrespect. And it's still a matter of disrespect when we choose to delay or neglect giving back to God out of our prosperity. Remember, it's all his. And then finally, eating roadkill. You shall be consecrated to me, he says. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs, right? Well, in today's world, that would be roadkill. Now, what's the, is this a matter of public health? Is this a matter of personal hygiene? No, this was a matter of ritual purity. God says, you are my people. There are some things that you are not going to eat. And so in order to teach his people how important it was for them to remain separated from sin, God distinguished between clean and unclean animals. Roadkill would be considered unclean. They were to be a consecrated people, a set-apart people, a holy people. God had already identified them as a king of priests and a holy nation. Now see, behind all of this, friends, is the attitude of God's compassion. He's giving this case law because he cares about their souls. He cares about their walk with him. He cares about their relationships with each other. And he cares about their sinful tendencies not to do the things that he knows that they should be doing. Now, aren't you glad that when you sin, God doesn't just slap you silly with his wrath? That he already knows that you're going to have a tendency to sin and he's compassionate with you when you sin so that you can be restored in your relationship with him? When we consider now some gospel implications, we realize here that this idea, this word compassion can be translated in Hebrew a number of different ways. It can be gracious, it can be merciful, it can be compassion. And I want to just first of all consider the compassion of God in the Old Testament. We're just going to do a quick read. We can't cover everything, but I just want to highlight a few verses here as we move through the Old Testament and consider God. First of all, God reveals himself to Moses. He does that later on in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. He says, I will make all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's compassion flows out of his heart, and he is the one who has the right to exercise it wherever he will. In the Psalms, we have a number of verses. I just picked three here. But you, O Lord, are our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Again, he understands. And so he's compassionate. 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, as we think now about disobedient Israel, I could draw your attention to 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. It's somewhat of a summary text in the storyline. And this, this is happening after um, uh, after Israel's kings who, who are not walking with God, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
finally are going to be overtaken and overthrown. This is what God says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messenger because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He sent all these prophets, in particular in the context here, he's sending Jeremiah to proclaim his truth, but they would not listen. But he kept on doing it, even though they wouldn't listen. But there comes a point in time, verse 16, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people until there was no remedy. But oh, how he was patient with them and compassionate with them. Of course, they're taken into into captivity. And then we find in in Micah, reflecting on what's going to happen in that captivity, we find at the end of the book, after the judgment, this is what God promises. He, that's God, will again have compassion on us. Again, right? Again, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let me ask you a question. Did Israel deserve that from God? What's the answer? Absolutely not. But he had committed to them, right? His said love, his compassion, his mercy. This is who God is. Even when Israel continues to be unfaithful, yes, God brings judgment. But even with that judgment, God has compassion as a backdrop and as a goal to restore them. That's good news, friends. See, often we have this view that, you know, the Old Testament God is an ogre just slapping Israel around. No, he is compassionate. He is patient. He is loving. And then we jump to the New Testament. We consider the compassion of Christ. There's a number of verses we could read, and they're up there on the screen, but I'll just highlight them here. He has compassion on the people because of their infirmities here. It says he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I think a wonderful text here, Luke 7, he has compassionate for the heartache of death that he encounters with this particular widow who has lost her only son. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, to her, do not weep. That's just a wonderful text. He has compassion because people have no food. This is the, you know, the old the multitude following him, and he's out there, and he, he turns to his disciples, look, look, I've been with these people all day. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So God does care about the practical and the physical. Those are important to him. But in Mark chapter 6, and verse 34, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, we're getting to the heart of the issue. It wasn't just that they didn't have food. It wasn't just that they were sick. It wasn't just that they were experiencing death. Those are all realities of life, right? But, but the, the greater need is they didn't have a shepherd. And guess who is their shepherd? He is. And he's coming to present himself. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he's showing himself to be the answer. Of course, in the parable of the sons, a picture of what it looks like for someone to repent and come to faith in Christ. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? And he arose and came to his father. But but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's, I mean, here's the... Here's the nugget, and that is there was a change in the heart of this son, a repentant change, and now he's coming back in, 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 uh, with great humility, not expecting anything. And what, is God, what does the father do? He sees him, has compassion, and he starts booking it right after his son. Look, this is a picture of, of what God is like when people repent and humble themselves before him. He is compassionate. My friends, this is just a a snapshot of compassion that we see coming from the heart of God, coming from the heart of Christ. And thirdly, we want to see that the compassion that we must maintain. There's a number of places we could go. I just want to land the text here in Colossians 3, 12. 
Because the Apostle Paul here gives us some instructions about we put off some things, but now we need to put some things on. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Isn't it interesting? He begins with that. There is a, is a tone that we should have in our hearts that is a tone of compassion that is modeled after the, the character of God. It's modeled after the character of Christ. This is what we should be like, people who function with compassion. And friends, this is the backdrop that we need in so much of our social interaction. We can get so hardened to people who are in difficult situations. Well, they deserve to be there. Well, you know, they did this, and that's why they're there. Okay, that may be true. But do you have compassion? Do you have compassion to think beyond their sinfulness? Do you have compassion to think beyond the, the, the areas where they have fallen face down in their sinfulness? To say, you know what? God's calling me to, to be interested in this person and to help them. Are you more concerned about the sin someone's committed? Or are you more concerned to have compassion to help them now that they've committed the sin to be restored to God. Those are tough issues, friends, because our hearts typically are fashioned and shaped by attitudes that we have in our heart that we glean from the world, but not necessarily from Christ. Now I just want to bring this to a close. This is not up on, on your heading here. Um, just some, a few concluding thoughts. The question now is this, what is our motivation when we lay down rules or have expectations for people? I'm just trying to bring this maybe to a little practical area and maybe for you to think about and even to talk about amongst yourselves. I'm going to give you four potential motivations. And this is probably not an exhaustive list, but this was, I was just processing through this and thought this might be helpful. First of all, you can have, be motivated by control. I am in charge, therefore, you're going to keep my rules, right? Anyone ever guilty of that? Yes, you don't even want to raise your hands, but you know it's true. The next one, convenience. I am the center of my own universe, and you will keep these rules because I don't want to be bothered by you. My own convenience is primary. Anyone ever guilty of that? Yeah, I see, I, I see those hands, friends. Yeah, it's true. I think we all are. Carelessness. You know, sometimes we just like, I, 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 don't, I don't have any rules. Do whatever you want. Or we can land the plane here with what we're seeing from this text. Compassion. Honest genuine concern for the well-being of others. See, friends, this is a heart attitude that spills out in how we are interacting with our children, with our spouse, with our friends and our neighbors, with our coworkers. If your motivation is control, that's going to cause damage. If your motivation is your own convenience, that's going to cause damage. If it's carelessness, that's going to cause damage. Or is it compassion? So friends, God is calling us to be people of compassion, knowing that people will struggle with sin and to come alongside them, to help them, and to fight for justice, for the victim, for the marginalized, to recognize that people struggle with the oppression that they're living in, and to realize that they will fall short, even in the things that they know that they should be doing it to worship the Lord. Praise God we serve a compassionate God who deals with us with his compassion. Lord, help us as we settle in now to this text and we allow it to, ponder, uh, to be part of our, our thinking and even in the quietness of our heart to, to consider, Lord, are we a reflection of the kind of compassion that you would like us to have. And Lord, maybe there's some areas in our lives where we need to turn the dial away from selfishness, away from self-centeredness, away from political anger or, 
uh, or social agendas and, and, to, and to put that dial on compassion and to allow that to reside in our hearts and to, to, to change our thinking, to consider how we process things in our world. And as such, Lord, have the freedom and the joy to present the gospel to a, a people who are undeserving, just like we are, who struggle with sin, who fall on our face, but have the wonder and the joy of having a God who died on the cross for our sins, for us, paying that penalty, paying that price for uh, that was necessary for our own salvation. Lord, we, we are humbled by your love and mercy and compassion for us. Help us to reflect that in our interactions with others, we ask in your name. Amen.